You're listening to the Nicene Creed, a Lenten podcast series from Covenant Shreveport, a church on a mission to declare and demonstrate the gospel in all of life. Learn more about us at covenantshreveport.org. Hey everyone, we're beginning week four of this special podcast, and we're walking through the history and content of the Nicene Creed. And I've been encouraging you over these last few weeks to really dig into the wording of the Creed by committing it to memory. And I hope that you're doing that. I find memorization easier if you divide it into chunks. Since the Creed is structured in three sections, it's easy to take each section individually and work on it. So I'd encourage you to try that out. With that in mind, though, let's read the Creed together today. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again. In accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So thus far, we've explored the history surrounding the Council of Nicaea and the controversy that they were convened to address, which were the teachings of Arius and others concerning the divinity of Christ. On a larger level, though, the 4th century in general was a time of seismic shift for the Christian church. When Constantine became emperor in 306, the church was reeling from years of violent persecution. Christianity had grown tremendously within the Roman Empire, particularly in the Eastern Empire, in places like Egypt and Northern Africa. And during the early to mid-200s, while there were perhaps localized instances of persecution, churches were able to grow and become more public. This all changed, however, starting in AD 284, when the emperor Diocletian came to power. This predecessor of Constantine saw himself as a religious reformer, and in a sense, he sought to make Rome great again by ridding it of religions that were contrary to the traditional Roman paganism. Diocletian waged a vicious campaign against followers of Jesus in the late 200s and early 300s, sending many believers to their deaths. Not only were many Christians killed and countless churches destroyed, 
But many also committed apostasy, or they denied Christ under the threat of death. It was an era that is known today as the Great Persecution. In particular, Diocletian stripped Christians of all rights and demanded that they worship the Olympian gods he favored. Eventually, even Christian clergy were required by law to make sacrifice to Roman gods. When they refused, they would be tortured and killed. In fact, many thousands of Christians would be killed for entertainment in the Colosseum, pulled apart by lions. While the intention, obviously, was to discourage people from Christian faith and to turn their gaze toward the Roman cult, the opposite actually happened. As Roman citizens watched thousands of Christians go bravely and unwaveringly to their deaths, even given many opportunities to do otherwise by denouncing Christ or by sacrificing to the Roman gods, it actually led a great many Romans to a Christian awakening. Romans chose to follow Jesus after witnessing the faithful endurance of martyrs. By the time Constantine came to power in the early 300s, the Christian population was perhaps as large as it had ever been in Rome. Constantine, who was certainly a savvy leader, saw an opportunity not to persecute Christians, but instead to secure an enormous base of support by issuing the Edict of Milan, which restored rights to Christians and effectively ended persecution. According to the Christian bishop of Caesarea and prominent Roman historian Eusebius, by the way, not the same Eusebius of Nicomedia we talked about last week, Constantine's turn toward Christianity began when he supposedly had a Christian vision. The year was 312, and Constantine was at the time one of two Roman emperors fighting against each other for ultimate power. The other was Maxentius. Prior to a famous battle known as the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, Eusebius, who said he heard this directly from Constantine, recounts that on the night before the battle, the emperor was commanded in a vision to put what's known as a key row symbol on the shields of his soldiers. The key row, which looks like a long P with an X through the bottom, is actually one of the earliest symbols developed by the church. It's a symbol denoting the first two letters of the Greek word Christos, or Christ. After prevailing in battle, Constantine issued the Edict of Milan and for better or worse became Rome's first true Christian sympathizing emperor. Now, it must be said that there is disagreement among scholars about whether or not Constantine actually became a Christian or if he was just trying to marshal Christian influence to his favor. But the church suddenly found itself on completely different footing. Throughout the 300s, even after the Council of Nicaea, Christian popularity and ubiquity continued to increase, eventually to the point that Roman pagans sort of became a persecuted group. It's also the first time historically that the church and the state became one unit. And to be honest, some people see this as the best thing to ever happen to the church, and others see it as the worst. Near the end of the century, though, the Emperor Theodosius issued the Edict of Thessalonica, which made Christianity the official state religion of Rome. At this time, though, 
There were many offshoots of Christianity throughout the empire, so Theodosius used the ruling of the Council of Nicaea as a way to determine whether a group was actually orthodox or not. Thus, the strain of Orthodox Christianity that became the state religion of Rome was Nicene Christianity, which said that Jesus was of one being with the Father. But what about the Holy Spirit? How does he fit into the equation? The church would actually need a whole other ecumenical council to decide on that question. Join us next time as we wrap up our exploration of the center section of the creed and consider the implications of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension.